Hello, everybody, and welcome to Monmouth College Conversations. I'm Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing. And every week during the academic year, I sit down with members of the Monmouth College community to talk to them about their interests, what they do, and things they've done. In this 18th edition of Monmouth College Conversations for the 2023-2024 school year and the first of 2024, we will chat with Monmouth College alumnus Brad Narstadt. Brad is the author of a great biography, Alton B. Parker, The Man Who Challenged Roosevelt. was one of the more respected and esteemed politicians in America's Gilded Age. Widely respected for his keen, sharp legal mind, Parker was chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals. At the time, it was the second most important U.S. court after the U.S. Supreme Court. That's when Parker became the Democratic Party's 1904 presidential nominee. Despite a sterling reputation, Parker had the misfortune to face one of America's most popular sitting presidents, Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, Roosevelt had been president since 1901. That's when President William McKinley was killed by an assassin at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. In the 1904 general election, Parker was routed by Roosevelt in what was up to that point one of the biggest presidential landslides. Roosevelt captured more than 56 percent of the more than 12.7 million votes cast in the election. He won the Electoral College 336 to 140. Parker only won 13 of the 45 states that cast votes in that election, and all of them came in what was known once upon a time as the Solid South. No longer in the public eye after the 1904 presidential election, Parker finished his career successfully, even though he never returned to the bench. As a result, a full-blown biography about Parker was never published, although, ironically, two biographies about his running mate, which was millionaire and former West Virginia Senator Henry Davis, have been published. Brad Narstad is a 1989 Monmouth graduate. He's a retired lawyer and a very astute follower of U.S. politics and history. He hopes that his new book, which is called Alton B. Parker, The Man Who Challenged Roosevelt, and it's published by the SUNY Press, will write what has been a major historical oversight. So a long time ago, probably three decades ago, I read a book called They Also Ran. And it was written by a well-known author. His name was Irving Stone. And it was, uh, I think initially it was published in the 60s. And it um, told a, a kind of, it provided a mini biography of every man, because up until that point in time, it had only been men who had run, uh, every man who'd run for president on a major party ticket and had not been elected. And there was a chapter in the book that lumped Alton Parker and Charles Evans Hughes together because the two of them were judges and they left the bench to run for president. Both of them were unsuccessful. And the seven or eight pages that were in the book about uh, Alton Parker, uh, the first paragraph ends with Stone saying, of all the major party candidates for president, Parker is the only one to never have a biography written about him. And 
that just kind of struck me when I when I read it. It's like, well, well, that doesn't seem right that he's the only one. Uh, and he was uh, Parker was a lawyer and a judge. Um, I was a practicing attorney. And so I felt the kind of kinship with him. And I thought, you know, that's just that doesn't seem right that that he's the only one that that no one has ever uh, told his story. And so I started collecting material. Um, 30 years ago, uh, anything that I could find that I thought might shed some light on who Alton Parker was, what he did uh, about the campaign in 1904, uh, I just started collecting things. And I, I had an entire bookshelf full of material. Um, and I, I even managed to track down, Dwayne, there, there was a history teacher in, uh, of all places, Peoria, Illinois, who in 1976 self-published a somewhat of a biography about Parker. It was it was longer than most uh, things that had been written about him, but it was it really didn't have a lot of information about his early life, and it really just ended with the election. It really didn't talk about what happened to him after the election. So this guy, this history teacher, he he had his secretary type it up, uh, and he spiral-bound it at the side, and it's almost impossible to find. I managed to track down a copy. I found a copy at a used bookstore. So I got that and I put it on the shelf and I basically just kind of left the stuff sitting there. I wasn't really hundred percent sure that I was, I was actually going to tell Parker's story. And then I retired and I had time on my hands and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should roll up my sleeves and see if I can get this done. And so, um, I sat down and, and started typing and uh, ended with a f- finished book. Uh, and and the, the reason I did it uh, is because I just I just didn't think it was right that nobody knew about him and nobody had told his story. So what is Judge Parker's story? So he he was a New Yorker, spent his entire life in New York, um, born on a farm in in upstate New York in the Hudson River Valley, um, went to school there uh, in what we would today call a country school. Right. Uh, he managed to. Um, uh, save some money by teaching. He actually, his first job was as a teacher and he managed to go to law school. Uh, he, he went to the Albany Law School, graduated from there, started practicing law. And he ultimately worked himself up to, to, to holding the one job he really wanted, which was to be chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals. And at that time, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, that was the second most important court in the country. It was the United States Supreme Court was the top court. And then the New York Court of Appeals was was number two. And it's it's a little, little strange. New York does their does their court system a little differently than most other courts. Uh, in most states, the top court in the state is the Supreme Court. In New York, the Supreme Court is actually trial court. It's not a court of last resort. The court of last resort in New York is the Court of Appeals. So Parker ultimately um, got elected to the Court of Appeals and then was elected. It was a position he had to run for, was elected as the chief judge. That was his dream job. 
Now, he was very, very happy being the chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals. But Parker believed that in a democracy, if you were called, you had to answer the call. And so when he was uh, nominated to uh, run as the Democratic nominee in 1904, he quit. The only job he really wanted, which, as I said, was to be the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, to run against arguably one of the most popular people to ever be president. He was going to run against Teddy Roosevelt. And he knew that it was going to be a rough Road to hope because Roosevelt was at the height of his popularity. You know, he, he became president when McKinley was assassinated. There was still a great deal of empathy for uh, Roosevelt for the fact that he took over from the assassinated McKinley. Roosevelt had pushed through a number of rather um, progressive reforms in the few years that he was finishing out McKinley's term. So he was really uh, quite popular, at, you know, 1903-1904. But Parker believed that if you were if you were nominated, you could not refuse to run. And so he reluctantly resigned from uh, the Court of Appeals. Uh, he ran. Uh, he lost in spectacular fashion. Uh, and, you know, that's really, I think, uh, part of the reason why he was never written about was that people just forgot about him for a couple of reasons. One, because he, he lost in spectacular fashion. And the second reason is he never again held public office. He was never a judge again. Uh, he never ran for, uh, even though people urged him to, never ran for public office. He really stayed out of the public eye. And so I think those two things uh, together uh, made him fade into obscurity, even though after he lost the election, um, he was uh, a very, very successful attorney in New York City. He was a president of the American Bar Association. He founded two different bar organizations in the state of New York. He was the uh, personal attorney for Samuel Gompers and the AFL-CIO. He was the prosecuting attorney for the uh, during the impeachment of the only New York governor to ever be impeached. And so he did a lot of really, really important things. He just did most of them behind the scenes. And so uh, I think he had a very successful career uh, post-election. Uh, but I think part of the reason why he was forgotten, why people, why nobody took the time to write about him was because people really forgot about him because he didn't stay in the public eye. You know, he wasn't he wasn't a William Jennings Bryan, right, who ran for president three times, lost three times and never left the public eye. You mentioned William Jennings Bryan. He represented the progressive wing of the Democratic Party at that period. Uh, Parker came out of what were known as the Bourbon Democrats. Yeah. Who, who were the Bourbon Democrats? What, what did they believe? 
So they were uh, fiscal conservatives. Uh, they were uh, firmly in favor of the, of the gold standard of of, of maintaining uh, the of gold as as our as the basis of our currency. Uh, they were um, basically it was the Eastern. Um, wing of the party the 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 democrats in new york new jersey uh pennsylvania uh they were they were the cleveland democrats right the folks that had had banded together uh to to get cleveland elected uh and basically uh they were uh and you when you when you say Democrats today, you don't think conservative, right? You think liberal. You think they're 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 the folks that are for the little guy. Uh, that was that wasn't the Bourbon Democrats. The Bourbon Democrats were for uh, big business, uh, sound money, uh, stay keeping on the gold standard. Um, they were, you know, really the 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 big money Democrats from the East. You're listening to Mammoth College Conversations. I'm Dwayne Bonifer in the Office of Communications and Marketing. I'm talking to Mammoth alumnus Brad Narstadt. He's the author of a very entertaining and fascinating biography called Alton B. Parker, The Man Who Challenged Roosevelt. The book, which is published by SUNY Press, is currently available as a hardback copy, and it will be released later this year as a paperback. A reminder that Monmouth College will celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day this January 15th with a very special convocation. Mama's Martin Luther King Jr. Day Convocation will be held at 11 in the morning on Monday, January 15th in the Dahl Chapel and Auditorium. The event will feature inspirational music and a keynote address by the Reverend Charles Burton. He's a 1992 Mammoth graduate. The event is free and open to the public, and you can read more about it in the news and events section of the Monmouth College website. And of course, that URL is monmouthcollege.edu. Now let's get back to my conversation with Monmouth alumnus Brad Narstadt. He's the author of the biography Alton B. Parker, The Man Who Challenged Roosevelt. In addition to facing an incredibly popular sitting president in Teddy Roosevelt, Brad says that Parker also faced several other campaign challenges. He was, so his his problem, Dwayne, is that people couldn't get to his front porch, right? Uh, so so there were people who were telling him, uh, "Just stay at home, right? Run 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 the campaign like McKinley." And 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 Parker Parker was not. He was he was a pretty firm believer that it was really. It was beneath a candidate to go out and campaign, right? That that people should know your positions, and uh, they should know, you know, what what you had done in the past, what your record, you know, what what does your record say about you, and that should be enough. And you know, although I never really found any evidence of this, I I believe that. Part of the reason why Parker was reluctant to campaign is that William Jennings Bryan did. Right. Brian, Brian turned um, presidential campaigns on their ears because before he won the nomination in 1896, 
people did not candidates did not go out and campaign it just was not done they would send surrogates out to campaign for them but they were not the people out there actually you know making the speeches shaking the hands kissing the babies brian turned that on its ear he believed the only way that he could win was if he got out and met the people and so he spent an inordinate amount of time and effort on that and i think uh parker really felt that was beneath a candidate. They shouldn't do that. And so he listened to the people who told him, yeah, just stay, just stay at your farm, stay at Rosemount, which is in Esopus, New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, people will come and see you. The problem was Esopus, New York is, is, is not close to anything. It's an hour boat ride up the Hudson from New York City. Uh, it was a several hour train ride. Uh, people just didn't go because it was very, very difficult for folks to get there. And so this idea that that Parker had that, well, I'll just stay at home and I'll, you know, I'll run a front porch campaign like McKinley uh, and, you know, people will come to see me. It just never materialized. And and I think that he and his his managers realized much too late in the game that that wasn't working and that people didn't know who he was. People in New York knew who he was, but outside New York, people didn't know who he was. And so at the very tail end of the campaign, the last like week, he finally decided, okay, I better get out and I better give, I better give some, some speeches. And what's funny is he never went outside of New Jersey and New York. And he he basically he spent all of his the, that last week giving speeches in New Jersey and New York, uh, and that didn't help him. And as you know, as you pointed out, he didn't win those states. So the places that he should where he should have gone, he should have gone to the Midwest. He should have he should have tried to pick up Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, maybe Michigan, uh, instead of concentrating on on New York and New Jersey and to a lesser extent Pennsylvania. Uh, he just did too little, too late, and it it was it was just as I said, it was an overwhelming defeat. I thought it was interesting that. In 1904, the Democratic National Convention was held in St. Louis. Of course, lots was happening in St. Louis. I think the uh, the Olympics were held there that that year. Uh, the World's Fair was going on in St. Louis, and Parker gets nominated on the first ballot, which wasn't terribly common at conventions then. His only real opposition he had was from William Randolph Hearst. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that convention like? So it was uh, it's, there. You're right. He did get the nomination on the fir- on the first ballot, which was unusual. But what what was a problem for him, even though he got the nomination on the first ballot, the party was so fractured that he wasn't able to win. And it was it, again, uh, it was it was it was a replay of of really the 1896 convention when when Brian won on the sixth or seventh ballot um actually as a surprise right because really the only person I think who thought that he had a chance to win in 1896 was William Jennings Bryan everyone else it, no one nobody going into that convention believed that he had uh, that he was even a candidate he happened to give one of the best speeches 
one of the best political speeches ever given. And that speech really launched his candidacy and got him uh, nominated. But as you pointed out a, a few minutes ago, Dwayne, the, the problem was uh, Brian represented the progressive wing, the silver wing, right? The, 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 the non uh, bourbon wing of the party and Brian's nomination split the party in two. And there was no way that Brian could win because the gold Democrats sat that election out. And without them, he didn't have enough electoral support to win. It was the exact opposite in 04. Even though Parker won on the first ballot, the uh, the silver Democrats, the progressive Democrats, did not get behind him. Right. He was he was the last gasp of the old guard. And they basically said, we're not going to support him. And so he he fared worse than Brian did, <laughs> because uh, Brian at least was able in in eight, in 96 was able to, to cobble together some Western states and some Midwestern states. He lost some of those in 1900, but still did better than Parker did in 04. So uh, although he managed to capture the the nomination in one ballot, uh, the backstory to that can't to that um convention was there was still such a a rift in the two sides of the party that it was going to be almost impossible for Parker to win and certainly against someone like Roosevelt it would it would have it would have taken a miracle for him to win and and the stars just weren't aligned that's mammoth alumnus Brad Narstadt he's the author of a great new book it's called Alton B Parker the man who challenged Roosevelt the excellent biography is published by SUNY Press it's currently available as a hardback and it will be out later this year as a paperback And that's a wrap on this 18th episode of Monmouth College Conversations for the 2023-2024 school year. You can tell us what you think or add to the conversation by firing off an email to us at news at monmouthcollege.edu. Be sure to put conversation in the subject line. Until our next conversation, this is Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing. Thanks so much for listening. So long, everybody, and have a nice day.